Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, an award-winning show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith, and this week I am joined by Dylan Reeve, the author of Fake Believe, Conspiracy Theories in Aotearoa. Thanks for joining us, Dylan. No worries. Thanks, Cam. I guess I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention uh, you're also the co-director of one of history's great documentaries, Tickled. Uh, history's great. I don't think I've seen that before. If you could have come out with that while we were still making the posters, it would have been great. Sorry. Yeah, it's all right. I guess just to begin with, that that film, uh, you're sort of drawn into a conspiracy. Did that prepare you for uh, the, the upsurge in conspiracy theories that uh, you've documented in this book? I think... What it is, is that film and this book and my interest in this stuff in general are all just kind of symptoms of the same thing, which is I like to just find weird little mysteries and learn things and dig down into into weird rabbit holes and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that film comes about because some strange stuff was on the internet and we sort of asked some questions about it and got some strange responses and the film is the end result of that. And then, you know, my interest in conspiracy theories, which has led to the book, is the same sort of thing. It's just me finding funny things on the internet. Well, not funny, but, you know, unusual things on the internet um, and kind of wanting to learn about them and argue about them and and uh, engage with them. The book's just come out. Perhaps you could tell our listeners, you know, what was the uh, the impetus for the book like? Or what did you intend to achieve with this? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think probably some of your listeners have the same experience, which is if they've been paying attention to these kinds of things for a while, for longer than the last couple of years, and they have, you know, friends who know that they are into these internet-y kind of rabbit hole conspiracy things, then in the last couple of years, as our friends and relatives have seen, you know, their friends and relatives and co-workers disappearing into rabbit holes and posting strange things online, they've sort of reached out to us and gone, hey, what is this? And so essentially the book is those conversations, kind of, uh, in in roughly, you know, 250 pages of, of just kind of going through what I sort of think I know about conspiracy theories and, you know, where they're from and what they sort of mean and what they might do for us going forward, that kind of thing. One of the sort of issues you look at is the the fact that conspiracy theories did used to be, you know, pretty fun. Like yeah. in the 90s, you had the X-Files. You, you could jump on the internet and you could argue about bullet directions in Dealey Plaza until <laughs> yeah, the house yeah. came home. At some point, though, it became less fun. What What do you think was that point? I mean, I put it down to sort of... I mean, I sort of put it down around 2015, 2016, which is obviously in the lead up to the Donald Trump election. Uh, that was a lot of conspiracy theory stuff happening then. And then also in 2013, 14 was when we had like a lot of conspiracy theories around the Sandy Hook school shooting, which were really, I think, the the, 
most obvious example of where conspiracy theories stop kind of being these, you know, generic discussions of kind of rhetorical points of view and started being targeting of individuals and, you know, and wrapping identifiable people into these conspiracy theories, identifiable normal people who, you know, had just existed in their day-to-day lives until something had, you know, made them a, a focus when, when I was, th- I read the book and I was thinking about this. I was like, you, you mentioned that like nine eleven, yeah, was you know it's not great, but people theorizing about it is essentially harmless. Yeah, and it's, I think I think the the thing about things like Sandy Hook is that there was also this sort of sinister edge that you know is this a conspiracy theory because it profit somebody profits from you know not taking action on gun control or something like that. I think it's really complicated. I think there's a sort of thing where people have this kind of idea that the that the government is constantly doing executing these these evil plans in order to you know move some kind of agenda so you know with your 9-11 that agenda is you know the project for the new american century and the um, patriot act and those things happened and i would argue that the actual truth of how 9-11 happened isn't really rel- isn't really important to those things having taken place they were well, it's the Patriot Act. I mean, the Project for the New American Century is a kind of whole other thing that feeds into the conspiracy theory. But the Patriot Act came about and the and the Iraqi War came about because, you know, people were willing to exploit the tragedy of 9-11 for their agenda, which is fine. They didn't have to create the event. Whereas you look at things, so, that, so that you come out with this idea that the government's doing these bad things or certain pa- people in power are doing these bad things to move an agenda. And then, so anytime a bad thing happens, you go, well, what's the agenda that this probably supports? And then you go, therefore, you know, in facto, this happened. It's the same thinking, but now we're not talking about this kind of, you know, massive event that that has government honchos and politicians at the top of it or, or anonymous, you know, Mossad and CIA operatives. Now we're talking about, you know, the parents of school children as being crisis actors and the nature of the the nature of the output of the conspiracy theory changes a lot. In the book, you go into some conspiracy theories that are unique to New Zealand. Could you speak a little bit about, like, uh, the firstly, I suppose, the place that New Zealand has had in the global, the, you know, the wider conspiracy theory world? I mean, I think the interesting thing about conspiracy theory now, and it, it wasn't always the case, obviously, because we're in a different place technologically, but there aren't really national borders in conspiracy theories anymore. So even... You know, even sort of quite localized conspiracy theory, and like one of the big ones for New Zealand is around the 1080, which is a um, a, a poison that we use to kill possums. Apparently, quite popular in Australia, the possums, but we don't like them and we kill them, and we kill them with this um, aerial poison called 1080. And we're you know the largest user of this poison in the world, and there are a lot of claims about what that poison's really doing. It's definitely killing possums. It's some killing some other things as well, but you know, everyone who is a verified kind of animal care expert in terms of looking after our ecology is like this is the best way to do it but people believe it's you know some sort of sinister plan some people believe it actually has to do with depopulation which then starts to tie into you know you've got your UN agenda 2020 and or sorry agenda 21 and agenda 2030 so we have these sort of localized conspiracy theories from time to time you know aside from your basic cryptozoology you know big animals living in places they shouldn't which we have a few you know a few claims of those things but any other sort of conspiracy theory that is quite New Zealandy also these days seems to have a, a tie into a, a larger global conspiracy because it's you know easy to. Yeah, I guess uh, New Zealand during COVID was sort of put forward as a uh, you know the the testing ground for the New World Order's uh, plot for all of us. Um, yeah, yeah, they were the, you know, and Australia to some extent as well. 
Yeah. Which, you know, didn't seem too bad, uh, this plot to make sure people didn't have COVID. I liked that plot more than I liked the current one, which is, I don't know what the current plot is, but the current plot is that, you know, COVID just runs wild and we pretend it doesn't exist anymore, which, um, you know, it's a whole different thing. But anyway. But perhaps a little bit better for the bottom line of the CBD cafes. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I that's, you know, we want to start talking about conspiracy theories. Maybe there's one, you know. I, I often, in talking to conspiracy theorists, I often say, look, I don't disagree with some of the problems you, you identify in the world. I just tend to think more often they're just caused by, you know, the nature of modern capitalism. That, you know, big business just wants to make money and it's often in the interests of big business to to do certain things. I mean, I'm not I'm not suggesting that ExxonMobil killed JFK or something, but, you know, like sometimes I think if you just sit back and look at what's happening, you just go, you know what, capitalism. We saw earlier in the year the uh, large protests outside of Parliament in New Zealand. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what those were and what drove them? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is they kind of – less successfully, but the kind of same thing was happening in in Australia at the same time, and that was what was called the convoy. And so it sort of – it sprung out of this Australia – sorry, out of this Canadian uh, movement whereby ostensibly some truckers made this grassroots organisation to, you know, combat the Canadian and US restrictions on inter-border travel and, you know, led a massive trucker convoy, they called it, to Ottawa – to blockade the city until the government relented. And what happened was that was relatively successful. And of course, along with that, you've got, you know, because it's COVID related, you've got all these people latching onto it with their various interpretations of what COVID was and what the actions around COVID meant. And then that was watched internationally. And suddenly, you know, the whole world had convoys. Australia had a few of them. Some reached Canberra, some went to state capitals. And New Zealand had one that went from, from the top of the North Island and the bottom of the South Island and tried to meet in Wellington. And that became a three-week, essentially, occupation of Parliament grounds, which, you know, was on the face. It was about um, vaccine mandates and passport vaccine passports and, and business restrictions and all that kind of stuff, but just served as kind of a, you know, like a, an all-encompassing anti-government, pro-quote-unquote-freedom, conspiracy-adjacent festival, essentially. And it ended in a fiery riot. (laughs) Yes. It it did have a bit of a a tough start. I remember when they were trying to get the ferry from the South Island. Yeah, that was tricky because when you're a a whole bunch of people who refuse the vaccination and the ferry required proof of vaccines to travel, that did put... Uh, a slight limitation on their ability to get to Wellington, but that's okay. They set up their own little camp in um, Picton at the top of the top of the South Island, and you know, sort of did their parallel thing. And I think um, a handful of people came across on a private like, fishing boat or something. But um, yeah, most of it was people from the North Island getting to Wellington to do their to do their protesting. Mm. And it did eventually culminate in what you'd have to say, if you considered burning down a playground to be a success, a, a big success for them. Yeah, big success in the playground burning, less success in public support building. But that said, I mean, there were a lot of people who were, I want to call it like entry level on the COVID conspiracy stuff. So people who were legitimately upset about the way COVID restrictions were enacted and perhaps the impact that had on their jobs or their families. Um, and so they joined the protest as, you know, this protest against mandates. But at the same time, they're alongside people who've got placards suggesting that journalists and politicians will be put put to a tribunal and executed. So, you know, there's a pretty big variation in what was being protested and, and what people believed. 
Um, and it sort of became a training ground for some people as well. Like there's an amazing video, I think I mentioned it in the book, where a, um, a farmer from, you know, halfway up the North Island is talking about how he's come down to Wellington and has been taught about how the government is actually a corporation. So, you know, it was yeah, quite a training ground for different types of conspiratorial belief. Could you speak a little bit about the influence that the far right have had in, you know, the, this event specifically, but maybe the, the anti-lockdown movement in New Zealand more generally? Yeah, I think it's similar to how it's sort of panned out in lots of places, which is essentially they're, they're kind of – a lot of people in the far right sort of see these types of events as an opportunity for recruiting. Essentially, you've got, you know, disenfranchised people who want to understand why the government is acting a way, in a way that they – believe that they are and want to um, have a scapegoat for that sort of thing um, and want to be able to take action. And so you've got people with, you know, far right ideologies who see that as, you know, a ripe uh, recruiting ground and they'll go into those same places and, you know, present an explanation about why these things are the way they are and who might be behind it. You know, some sort of cabal of global bankers would be um, a common suggestion. And what they should do about it, which might be, you know, join their local nationalist organization. And so they're there. And I think they're usually quite low key, at least in my experience. They're not coming out in the in the wider sort of, you know, protest channel or whatever with their full on beliefs. But they are kind of encouraging people to come and, you know, join their other channels and learn about their other things where they might be a bit more open about it. We had this sort of situation with the protest in Wellington where a lot of people were calling, you know, were pointing out that there were literal Nazis involved in the protest and therefore were wrongly calling the protesters Nazis, which they obviously weren't, um, which then caused, you know, a lot of back and forth about everyone's just called, you know, they're they're besmirching us. They're calling us Nazis because they can't deal with the things we're criticizing. And it's, you know, an unhelpful kind of um, merging of them, but there were definitely, you know, literal Nazis and, more figurative Nazis engaged in those protests and in those online channels and trying to sort of spread their message in a low-key way to start with. There was also, in in Australia, uh, one thing that happened is that uh, some of the maybe further to the right uh, members of the the Liberal Party that would become not uh, intimately involved in the protests but would lend them support and uh, were sort of flirting with anti-vax ideas. What was the response of mainstream conservatism in New Zealand to these movements? I think we're quite lucky in that we haven't really seen that happen here. And I think it's one of the things that has kind of prevented some of these ideologies from really sort of having a big impact. Unlike the US, for example, where you've kind of got this, what you might call conspiracy capture of the the mainstream right-wing parties or party um, we don't have that so much in New Zealand. The right-wing party here, the most right-wing party here is ACT, which is a very small party of, um, you know, libertarian right-wing kind of bent. They were generally supportive of a lot of the, you know, the COVID health measures at least. They, you know, often criticised, you know, when borders were closed versus when they shouldn't be and what businesses could and couldn't do. But they didn't sort of come out and suggest that COVID was a hoax or, or vaccines were poison. So, you know, that's good. And I think... For the most part, our mainstream political parties haven't dabbled too much in that. What what does happen from time to time is they, what you might say, accidentally dog whistle. Or, you know, if you're being less charitable, they covertly dog whistle, I suppose you might say. They they don't take action to avoid dog whistling. They, they try to do it in a way that seems deniable. But I think because of the fact that our main political parties, especially the, you know, the more the right wing, the opposition party at the moment, doesn't buy into a lot of that stuff. They can't really count support from the from the sort of conspiracy side, uh, count on support from them because 
they will quickly let them down by, you know, not being ideologically pure enough in how they see these conspiracies. You've, uh, since uh, the onset of the pandemic, you've had a few elections in New Zealand. Has anyone managed to actually get any political capital out of opposing vaccination at this point? Because uh, you've recently had your local elections where it seems like yep. conspiracists lost as many <laughs> seats as they won. Yeah, I mean, the, the the sum total after that was was not too bad. I mean, we have, a you know, our, our local body politics is quite broad. We have a lot of local councils and then within local councils you have sort of community boards and, and different smaller groups. And obviously, you know, in some of those groups you kind of being nominated is enough to be elected because, you know, no one really cares. And then in other groups, you know, having a name that sounds vaguely familiar might be enough to get you in because there's not a lot of media attention or, or campaigning. So in the local election, I think they probably did okay-ish, but definitely not as bad as it looked like some people might think they were going to do. We also had a general election in 2020, which there was a party in that election called the New Zealand Public Party, which was formed by a very conspiracy-focused former blues musician named Billy TK, and they made a lot of noise. They got some attention. They were they held you know quite large protest gatherings during various lockdowns that we had, and they got nothing. Essentially, they got no result. Um, so that that was them them out of that election, and they just you know flamed out and melted down in a in a um, pile of scandal and fundraising drama as these types of things are tending to do. And then sort of uh, earlier earlier this year, we had a, um, a by-election, like a, a national, uh, you know, like a national party seat or a, yeah, a, a party seat, a by-election in one of, our, one of our main electorates where a bunch of, they would call themselves freedom candidates, sort of vied for the seat and hoped to get power and they split the vote amongst themselves. Oops. Yeah, which is another thing that they've then come on after the fact. You know, some people are trying very hard to encourage them to, you know, to kind of form a coalition or an umbrella to compete in the general election, which I don't think they will. But even if they did, I think, you know, in that particular by-election between them all, they got somewhere in the 6% kind of range, um, which is enough in our MMP system. It would be enough to get some representation in parliament, but I doubt they could pull that off across the country. I was proud reading the book to see some Australians really making their mark in the conspiracy scene in Aotearoa, especially Sandra Crack. Oh, yeah, Sheriff Sandra. She, um, she, yeah, she she made quite a splash for a little while. She came, well, didn't come over. She zoomed over um, and told us how we could have a well a grand jury to um, uh, declare the government unlawful and and convict them of crimes against humanity. Uh, and then she proceeded to have that grand jury with uh, 20-something people on a Zoom call for two days. Um, and they obviously found the government to be guilty of crimes against humanity and ordered them to uh, either leave the country or or face arrest. far as I know, none of them have left the country. I mean, aside from, you know, the brief excursion here and there for some sort of diplomatic purpose, but they keep coming back. So that hasn't worked. And we also have, I don't know if I wrote about that in the book, but we also had Karen Brewer was making quite a, um, uh, quite a, a splash here for a while. She was quite big during some lockdown stuff and doing protests outside our governor's general's residence and things. Yes, uh, she, she does get a mention in the book, and uh, it's interesting that I'd, I'd followed the career of Karen for some time, and mm. I, I think one of the revelations during the pandemic was that she was in New Zealand the whole time. She yeah. gave the impression that she was in Australia. Did she? Oh, yeah. No, she was um, posting 
lots of uh, she was in Northland and near Kaikohi and was um, <laughs> regularly turning up outside the the district council and, and courthouse there to protest. I think at one point she was charged with breaching one of our lockdown things, but that charge was eventually dropped. And then, yeah, last I heard, she's, she's headed back to Australia. So I guess the whatever it was, the defamation action that was taken against her in the past must have expired or she's got away with it or something. Oh, so I think she was a, a judgment was made against her in that case for, yeah. I think, close to a million dollars. Yeah, I'm guessing she hasn't paid it and she's back in Australia. So I presume there's some way out of it. Mm. Well, that, that, that was what I was going to ask you about next, actually. Uh, so we had that case and we've also seen Alex Jones facing significant defamation action in the past few months. Mm. Do you think that, uh, you know, the courts are a, a useful way of approaching these people? I, I I mean, not generally. I think the difficulty, and I, I think the difficulty with legislating around this stuff uh, entirely is that, I mean, there, there are real concerns around freedom of expression. Like, we all value freedom of expression, and it is quite important. And a lot of this stuff exists on that freedom of, on, a, on what I would call like a, a continuum of what is okay freedom of expression. And I think the problem with involving the courts is it means we have to draw a line somewhere and there's a very good chance that that line is not going to be in a place we like. Either the courts are going to rule that actually you can do and say just about anything or they're going to make a ruling that has a negative precedent for for legitimate political speech and protest. So, you know, I don't think there's any any easy answers. I think occasionally, you know, people stroll into a space where they're, they're – the activism and, and conspiracy theorizing um, does, you know, land them in a, 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 an obvious place of defamation or libel, and those things can be handled sort of civilly. But in general, you know, I'm sort of reluctant to say that, you know, one thing or another, like you can't really say that misinformation or disinformation should be outlawed because, you know, there's no really good test for what is and isn't. Um, and I also don't think it's a great idea to be able to create a framework in which, you know, anyone can create take more legal action against people for speech they don't like because already with you know defamation and things that that can be you know used as a, a hammer to attack people especially by people who have a lot of resources against people who don't so you know the legal system's not a great approach I was also wondering what you thought about uh, us uh, sort of farming out this the, the work of combating misinformation and disinformation to tech companies. It must be yeah. interesting to have a book about conspiracy theories coming out just as Elon Musk takes over Twitter and makes his first action to spread weird conspiracy theories. Yeah, I, I think, you know, technology has obviously enabled a lot of what is current conspiracy theory in a way that has, you know, supercharged it when you know when we used to have to you know dial up to a bbs or or um you know subscribe to a, a physical mailing letter from you know oregon that things were very different there's no putting that genie back in the bottle and i don't think you know i don't think tech companies are are either prepared to or or physically able to um stem the flow uh, again it's the sort of thing i think you know we're, we're in a place now we can't undo any of this like we can all communicate freely and that's fantastic often, but you know, you kind of have to take the good with the bad and the bad is going to be that people who um, have ideas that we think are just straight up wrong or harmful or, you know, damaging are going to be able to communicate those ideas in the same way that people we think should be able to communicate uh, need to be able to. So um, it's a sort of ongoing battle for social media. And I think part of that is we need to, I don't know, we need to do our part to try and not contribute to it for a start. 
and also where possible to, you know, to, to help keep people away from it, to help point moderators in the right direction, I suppose. Um, and, that, you know, there'll be, like we've, the New Zealand government sort of initiated that, the, the, the movement called the Christchurch Call after the 2019 mosque shooting here, um, which is, you know, an initiative to try and get social media companies to approach the problem differently. But I don't see it getting dramatically better anytime soon. One thing that uh, I've noticed of late, and I'm also guilty of this myself, uh, the other day I was in the city and I clocked a cooker wearing a shirt that said, uh, you know, good people break bad laws. And I was like, yeah. well, what laws are we talking about? But I mean, on, a, on the face of it, that's not a uh, bad sentiment. No. But I had, cl- you know, I'd clocked them correctly. I guess the, the, there's this increasing tendency, it seems, sometimes in the public discourse, though, to co- conflate anti-authoritarianism generally with the pushing of disinformation, yeah. misinformation. Is it, the, how do you think we could avoid that? I think the problem is I think that I think that's the most legitimate point that often gets raised by quote-unquote conspiracy theorists in this discussion is that, you know, are you being sceptical of conspiracy theories or are you just buying the official narrative? And it's easy when the official narrative is something we generally believe is correct and right to to ignore that criticism but there are times and we you know we shouldn't shouldn't be dismissive of the risk that you know at some point yeah there may be bad laws that don't fall in our favor and there may be a mainstream narrative and and you know a government line that that is wrong and yeah that's part of why i think the the law thing is a problem because you know it's easy to create a law now that does one thing that we think is good, but it's you know not hard for that law to suddenly become a, a weapon against us in the future. I think, I think the best thing we can do is just try and check ourselves from time to time. You know, when you when I look at these ideas, I try not to rule them out. And it's one of the problems with the term conspiracy theory. You know, if I could have written the book without saying conspiracy, without using the term conspiracy theory, like I do. I would have done so because it's not a helpful term. It is pejorative and there's a criticism that comes from conspiracy theorists that when you say conspiracy theorist and conspiracy theory, you're using it as a, you know, just an automatic tool to delegitimize what they're, what they're saying and who they are. And that is definitely true. That is what happens when I say something is a conspiracy theory. When I say someone is a conspiracy theorist, you immediately, you know, it's a shorthand, you immediately go, okay, it's, it's you know, and a person with these, you know, fake, disinformation beliefs and they and this is wrong and that's not generally helpful because we should actually be able to kind of assess these things each time we come across them and sort of just it doesn't have to be a big assessment you don't have to go and research everything you can just have a quick look at it and go you know what this is taking the form that i'm fairly sure that it is not a real thing but we should still i think be in the habit of just checking our prejudice from time to time and just you know double checking what we think just finally Dylan, uh, your official media tour is over, so we're fully into unofficial media right now. You are you are fully unofficial media. You are not even in New Zealand, therefore, like my publicist doesn't even know I'm doing this. Yeah, so you can feel free to uh, make a complete heel turn here and uh, come out on the side of conspiracies. Uh, What's your favourite conspiracy theory? Well, I think it's a. I don't know why I didn't anticipate this question before I started doing media for the book because I didn't, and I think the thing is like. I talk about right at the beginning of the book, I talk about this idea that I used to think conspiracy theories were fun. And it wasn't that I had a favorite one or there was any that I particularly believe, but there were some that were just kind of, it was just kind of fun to entertain in the way of like, wow, what would that really mean? Or, or how wild is it that people actually legitimately buy into this? And so you've got, you know, the obvious one is flat earth, like, come on, like, but you, you know, you'd look at some good flat earth material and you're like, wow, this person is really not understanding the world that they live in. 
and then there's other things like I, so I, you know, my day job is in film and television and I've done that for 20 years. Um, and there's a 9-11 conspiracy theory that claims there were no planes. And not only were there no planes, everything we saw that we think was a plane was actually a computer-generated image, some sort of CG graphics situation that was, you know, composited either after the fact and then the images were released or in some cases composited live on TV so that, you know, you could see it. And there is, you know, some will say evidence of this. And I look at those claims and videos and I go, this is just a hilarious, like, failure to understand the technology and the realities of broadcasting. Uh, and so I've always found those ones quite engaging, just just because they, they, you know, they tickle that area that I have uh, a direct knowledge of. I have to say my favorite one from the book that you mentioned is the idea that uh, after JFK was assassinated, the Christchurch Star, a small local yeah. newspaper, accidentally published, uh, you know, the packet on Lee Harvey Oswald early. Yep. There's a very similar 9-11 conspiracy theory, which is that during 9-11, the BBC reported the collapse of World Trade Center 7 building, uh, I don't know, 25 minutes early or something, uh, which is true. They did. They did report that collapse before it happened. And, you know, that seems like it could be good information until you've ever worked in a newsroom in a breaking breaking news environment or anything like that. And you go, oh, this is just, you know, it looked like it was going to collapse for a long time and someone, you know, a game of telephone took place and everyone got confused. But it's like, I just don't understand where people have this idea that a conspiracy theory, like why would you even, you wouldn't have to deliver a script to, to the BBC news reporter about a thing that was going to happen because they can just look at the thing that happens and talk about what they see. Like every other time they report anything and no one has to be any the wiser. But summary, for some reason, the conspiracy theory claim is that, you know, there were scripts distributed to international news outlets ahead of time for some reason. Well, Dylan, the book is called Fake Believe. It's out now. And you can follow Dylan on Twitter at Dylan Reeve. Thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you. All right. We'll be back next week. See you later. I've had a few jobs over the years. None I've really loved. A mate suggested I use my skills to teach. Turns out I only needed to study for under two years. Now I'm in demand in a secure career I love. Come on, kids, gather around. Are you ready? Fast track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.